All right, hey guys, and welcome to the Three Drinks In podcast, episode number two hundred and fifty-one. I'm your host Vince. Over there is your host Phil. Hey. In this episode, we are talking about All Quiet on the Western Front from Netflix, uh, starring a bunch of guys whose names are in German and I can't pronounce them, so we're just going to skip over those. But just say they're all really great. You should go look them up. Uh, before we get into all that, I want to ask you to please subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. Uh, please leave us a rating or, or re- review. We really appreciate that. And uh, please try and follow us on Twitter and Instagram while those things still exist. Uh, you can like us on Facebook and you can email us at three drinks in podcast at gmail.com. Uh, last of all, please uh, go over there and check us out at tpublic.com for all your three drinks in podcast merchandising needs. So the goal was to say that as fast as humanly possible. Yeah. Which like a micro machine's gay. <laughs> I was going to say, like, I rambled through that. I've had three drinks tonight, literally, and and I'm having a Dr. A Dr. Pepper, mm. which is good because I watched that... Uh, that John Green video I sent you about, like, what Dr. Pepper is, and I was like, oh, I get it now. It's liquid manna from heaven. <laughs> <laughs> well, Delicious. I, I didn't know who the guy was. He kept coming up in my For You page on on uh, on TikTok, and he was like, you know, this is, you know, he would do, like, a short-form video, and I'd be like, oh, well, he's interesting. Who is this guy? And then I realized that he wrote The Fault in Our Stars, which was that really sappy terribly depressing movie about the teens with cancer which is just unbelievably and you know it turns out he was like a divinity scholar who went to work with children with who you know who had terminal 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 illnesses and it was just you know it was all from experience which was like okay fine you can write about this if you've observed all of it like i can kind of give you that pass because that's that's just gut-wrenching but um now he's just this very famous and uh, prolific personality who lives in Indiana and likes it, and did a whole thing about he was blind testing Dr. Peppers, and you know he's got all the whole bunch like a couple of knockoffs, regular and diet, and he's just like, okay, this thing tastes like nothing else, and it's still delicious, and like it doesn't taste like cola it doesn't taste like lemon lime it tastes like what something smelled like in 1864 i'm like yeah. wait what and once he explained it like that i was like oh that kind of, you're drinking out of a dr pepper cup right now as I'm this, watching is, you. this is the dr pepper cup i got for free um it's a what do they call it it's a corksicle <laughs> which is like one step down from yeti <laughs> I was gonna say it's pretty good though. You you know you buy enough they'll give you anything. So <laughs> you buy enough meat they'll give you anything. It keeps everything it keeps everything very cold. It's, yeah, it's fantastic. So drink Dr Pepper, everyone. It's good. I've always liked it, but like I, you know, there's something about me in that I'm I'm a loon, and that like un. When you explain something to me, I develop an appreciation for it that I may not have had without that sort of literary explanation. So when, so, so when someone says to me, this is not supposed to taste like anything, not like prune juice, not like anything else. It's just supposed to be something a guy who's a chemist concocted to be like the world's best soft drink. And it's supposed to taste like something that you recall like a memory. And once you say that to me, I go, I, I just begin to appreciate it more when I think about it in that context versus like, you know, I probably prefer Coca-Cola to this. But at the same time, I'm like, you know, I just, the, the complexity of this, I didn't give it enough credit. And now I'm like, I'm really kind of thinking about it. And I, you know, so it, it's good. <laughs> it's always been good, but now it's like, now I know why it's good. Because yeah, it was explained an, to me. It's not an accident. <laughs> no. Well, no. Well, no, that's the thing. It's not an accident. Coca-Cola, definitely an accident. Like, And that's okay. Like cornflakes, accident. All these things, accident. Penicillin, champagne, accident. But like sometimes like if you're, if you're deliberate, you can create a thing that's really quite good. 
unlike World War One, which was just a horrible, terrible nightmare we should never have to endure again. Yeah, my wife was like, why do you guys keep picking these movies? <laughs> I was like, well, you know, it's on Netflix, but... Uh, <laughs> I was going to say, well, it's free. Not free, but cheap. You know, but I don't have to leave it to go out and see it, but, uh, you know, it's supposed to be good. And uh, she read the, the novel. All Did she really? Under, I think they read it in school. No kidding. So I didn't, I never read it in, high school, in school at all, so... no. Uh, but even she knew she's like, Oh, that's a that's a downer. <laughs> <laughs> Most things about World War One are because it was obviously so different from World War Two, in which you had like a clear villain and and such, but like even just the way World War One was fought was was more of a downer. Like it's hard to imagine they ever thought any of that stuff was a good idea, you know. We're just going to run across this giant open space and hope enough guys get through the artillery to shoot the other ones on the other side. Like, uh, it's shocking to, to to watch it or even think about. So, um, but what did you think of All Quiet on the Western Front, the 2022 version? Um, I think that I benefit immensely from knowing absolutely nothing about what I'm going to watch. I think that if I have any pre preconceived notion about a, a film or even a TV show, that I'm like, oh, you know, okay, we're going to watch this. Uh, I can be swayed wildly from one side to the other. If I think it's going to be this and it's not that, I'm like, oh, wow, that was, well, that was unexpected, you know, and that was either good or that was bad, but like, I, I really enjoy not knowing anything. You know, I think my, my, my two best theatrical experiences as a young person was seeing American Beauty, which people pan now as like the worst of all the Oscar winners from the late 20th century, and The Matrix, which everyone loves. And I went into them knowing absolutely nothing. Back when you we just go to the movies to see whatever was playing. Now you're inundated with so much marketing. It's difficult to go to the theater and not know half of what's going on through the marketing campaigns. And so I remember going to see those two films and being blown away. And they're very different movies. <laughs> it's just widely different kinds of films. Um, and like I had heard the phrase all quiet on the Western front my whole life. It, it's an expression. It's not just the name of a movie. It's not what the translation is in German. I forget what the... I, they had a thing about it. It's somewhere. I, I forget what it is. But the name of the... Um, it's In Wistern Nichts Nuss. I'm saying that wrong, I'm sure. It does not translate to All Quiet on the Western Front. It translates to something different. Um, but it just works better in English as as that. And so... It be, but it just became a an expression, like a, you know, like anything else. So I I knew nothing about it beyond oh, it's about World War One, and it's probably sad because it's about World War One, and um, I don't know. I I think this was a great movie. <laughs> this was really, really quite wonderful, and almost has no business being on Netflix beyond the fact that it's in German. And the guy from Captain America Civil War, who was the bad guy nominally in that movie, is the producer and, you know, one of the uh, supporting actors in the film, and he's fantastic. And, you know, he's both German and Brazilian, and he was saying like, oh, yeah, someone told me, hey, there's no version of this in German. There should be, because it's a great story. And the Nazis wanted to burn it, you know, in their giant pyres, and it survives, and we should make a movie about this in German. And he's like, yeah, we should. And they did an amazing job. It, it's just, it's phenomenal. This is just a wonderful, wonderful movie. And um, 
I, you know, I'm, I'm buoyed by the fact, but that I didn't have any preconceived notions going into it because I would have been like, well, you know, it isn't quite like the book, and it isn't quite like the old movie from the '30s, and this and that, and even if it's better or worse than that, like I, I had nothing going into it, and that was really sort of helpful. Like I had 1917, which was the last movie about this topic that I saw recently. I think that was the last movie we saw in the theaters before the pandemic hit. Mm. Um, and uh, it had it become sort of like almost fashionable to make a movie about World War One. It, I don't know, like people got kind of got tired of World, of World War Two movies. They've been they've been making them for like you know half a century, and it was always kind of a little obvious. Germans are bad, and Japanese are bad. These guys are good, and Peter Jackson came along and made. Um, I think it's called and when when they were young or when I can't think of the name of the film, but he made a, a documentary, just made of like archival footage that he colorized and then interviews that he kind of spliced together, and I tried to watch it and like everything else he's made since the the Lord of the Rings, it's it's unwatchable, but it's a topic that people have been fascinated by because it's so obviously this is war is bad kind of a motif there's no there's no ambiguity about like we should all think this was terrible kind of a thing whereas like world war ii was like you know war is okay depending it's quite specific as why you should think this is good um but that you know that that began the sort of fascination with world war one as like we should you know redo this topic i think wonder woman did the same thing you know, it was that that was the backdrop to uh, to that film. So there's been like a a resurgence of, of interest in this time period because it's so obvious. Like the whole thing was just garbage, and we should really never do this again. And that's true. Um, but I I think by going back to this story, which is told from the German point of view and not the American point of view, it ends up being way more interesting and complex because they're the aggressor, they're the bad guy, and they lose and they have to eat it the whole time. And that's what you're dealing with here is guys just taking it on the chin and trying to live their lives and survive and then be slowly beaten down and disintegrated as a result. And it's hard to make that compelling without being unbelievably morose and I think you did about as good a job as you could do in this film. I think I thought it was phenomenal. What'd you think? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I agree. I think it was great. This might this might be the best war movie I've ever seen. Yeah. Um, and I I heard it was going to be a hard watch because uh you know it's World War One and it's the end where they're all getting you know mowed down by flamethrowers and and crushed by tanks and all kinds of things and i was like yeah geez you know it's hard to watch stuff like that but at least i'm at home and i I can cover my eyes and (laughs) you know um and my wife did she did say after it was over i was like you know it was still hard to watch but she was like was it like saving private ryan which she's never seen really yeah and she's because she she, i was like oh my Nothing is harder to watch than Saving Private Ryan. That is the most ridiculously hard to watch movie. No, uh, I'm going to go with Schindler's List, but go on. No, but I mean, the, I'm just thinking of like the gore. And I don't mean like, you know, compared to like movies like Hostel and other you know stuff like that. Oh, no, God, no, 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 no. You know, but but like because here's a movie that's playing on all your emotions as well and like the first 30 minutes of that movie are just so hard to watch i mean people's faces getting blown off so i thought that that might happen here and people do get hurt and there are obviously some images that are like you know the guy getting crushed by the tank was really hard i was like oh my god but um but it's a like lot of time they, like they discovered tanks and they're like oh oh uh, they yeah. can do that like you're learning about it as like and that was what was amazing to me about that was they were like we've never considered this as a possibility before and then they just get destroyed oh my god it was so know, terrible but, but it wasn't it wasn't really like that it was just um the emotions and the carnage and uh, the hopelessness and all that kind of stuff uh, is what made it hard to watch. Like it was a long movie, and you yeah. felt every second of it. Yeah, you did. 
because that's what they wanted. They wanted you to do that. Um, but it was still like, you couldn't look away. It was done so well. Um, and they use, they use some certain tricks that most movies do, you know, the four friends who sign up thinking they're going to be marching to Paris after a week or two, and then they get to the trenches and, you know, it's a miserable bloodbath in the mud. Um, and like, there's the main guy, tall, skinny, good looking dude, his skinny black haired friend, his fatter friend and the guy with the glasses, <laughs> you know, like, yeah. and then the, the guy they look up to in the trenches who's been there before got a big bushy mustache. It's like, all right, I can tell them all apart now. You know, I actually had a hard time trick. with two, with two guys. There was two guys that looked similar. There was yes. the guy that dies the last, the guy he carries on it. By the way, this is all spoilers for those of you who listen to this. Like, don't tell me what happens. Stop. Um, there was two guys that looked the same. Cat and the guy who stabs himself in the neck with a fork. Yeah, I J- jumped. Jayden. Yeah, yeah. J- Trade. I jumped in my chair. I literally jumped. Oh, at that point, I was so numb to it. I was like, oh, God, he's doing that. Oh, jeez. Oh, God. I, I just like. <laughs> rather than be crippled, he killed himself. Rather, Well, that that was it. Like, he was just like, this is. And that was the beginning, I think, for a lot of like, you know. I mean, he, he loses the guy with the glasses very early on. Yeah, the first day, I the think. The first day, he's, he's, he has to go around and collect all of their dog tags. And he, you know, and it, I mean, this is a fucking master class. In visual storytelling, I have like six notes in my that I took on this movie. The fewer notes I have on a movie, the better off you are. I have six of them. But even that guy, um, I think it's pronounced Jaden. It's T J A D. Yeah, he had a a funny eye. His yeah, left yeah. eye was like a different color, like it was either broken or dead or something. So like yeah. I was like, oh, he also has a mustache, but his eye is all messed up. So it's like, oh, okay, like. Which is yeah. fine. You can do those things, like because the idea is that they're all supposed to be basically cannon fodder. So you need something to help discern who's who. You know, like, <laughs> and they're like, all really Aryan. So like, right. like they're all supposed to be German guys. So you know, there's two thousand men behind them, and they're all wearing the same colored, you know, olive drab outfits, and the landscape is brown and desolate. So I was like, you know, those tricks are they're tricks for a reason. Works fine. Yeah. Work no, it worked fine. Everything visually about the film worked great. It was a master class in visual storytelling. You know, just every bit of it. It was you know, you didn't have to do a lot of talking. You know, which helped the fact because like I, you know, I don't speak German, so it, it was. Did great. you watch it? Did you watch it with the German and the subtitles, or did you watch the uh, dub? Oh, I never watched the dub. Oh. I don't know what it is. I have a thing about it. It's it it, it kind of comes across as snooty, like oh you don't watch the dub. You know I watch it in the original. And I I read. I can read. No, I sometimes find that when I hear the dub, I I think I did this with like there was a a French show on Netflix called Lupin, which is about like a like, like a cat burglar. And we, my wife and I turned it on one day. Like, oh, I hear this is good. We'll put this on. And we're like, why are they speaking? I thought this was a French show. And then we, we realized that, that, that Netflix automatically put us in the dubbed English version. Well, that was the thing. It was already... So, like, when they were, like, talking about signing up for the war and they sounded funny, I was like, I thought this movie was German. And I realized, like, oh, the dub is on already. So I, yeah. I had to pause it and switch it. You know, it, I'll just read the subtitles. It doesn't sound right. Yeah, it was like it, a little off. It never sounds right. And I I don't know, like <laughs> there's no way to say this without sounding fucking snobbish. But like the actors are the actors and you can fucking read. Like read. It's Well, you it's like, you know, you lose something. It's like when you read a translated book or something. You you're not getting the same inflections and and emotion that's coming through. So, and like you know, and those you know. and book, books that are really important will work really hard on the translation. Like, I think Heart of Darkness was written 
Was it was it written in, in English? Yeah. It was okay. Yeah. So, but like he didn't. He but that wasn't his first language. So he worked hard on making that you know a thing that was accessible in English. Sure. And so, like you know, there there are people that 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 work very hard to make a thing not written in English come across in the same language. And it's not a literal thing. It's, you know, you have to, it's one of the hardest jobs I can think of is to take a thing written in a different language, which is going to have different perspectives on absolutely every minute thing ever. And then make it sound right. Teacher, I've had enough. (laughs) (laughs) Go home, bird teacher. No, yeah, so I, I think I think from now on, once you've made the switch from like you know non English to the native language, you'll you won't have to do that again with with Netflix because they know oh he's quite highbrow. He won't have to have this translated into English for him. Uh, and this is the movie where you need that, yeah, because they don't shy away from showing like fear and screaming and stuff like that. Like if you're watching a rom com, like you, you can get away with it a little better but in this one you need those subtleties of how they're feeling yeah you know? the raw the raw and i mean raw emotion happening in some of these scenes you know the the scene with him in the trench after he's killed the french soldier he stabs him so many times up close and then you know he spends like 10 minutes apologizing and like trying to like no i'm 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 going to go find your widow and child and tell them you know how sorry i am like and you don't know if that's actually, that's going to happen like i didn't know what happened at the end mm-hmm. and i'm so glad i didn't know cuz that's so damn powerful and i think if i knew what that was i would have had a very i would i would have been bored sure i think at times <laughs> And you're sort of waiting for it. Yeah. So, like, I'm going to tell you all right now, if you're still listening to this podcast and you haven't watched the movie, stop right now, even though it's going to fuck with our analytics, and go watch this movie and come back. But when he gets killed and they go, all right, that's it. We're done fighting. (laughs) He had 10 seconds to make it, and they stabbed him in the back. Jesus Christ. Yeah. It, it, you know. You, you can't you you can't surpass that. That's it. They get to do it one time. You can't do it again for a while. You got to do it again really in a very like innovative way <clears throat> innovative way to make that sort of like 11 11 11 thing kind of work out. Mm. But um so what were your notes? Um, I love the music, the sort of like anachronistic music that they had going on, like this like heavy guitar thing playing throughout. Very sparing. Very sparing, but very powerful. I I thought that like you know it it stood out in that like it was not like it wasn't like a like a marching band which they would have had back then. But it was like a heavy, like industrial sounding kind of thing. It was electric. It was not acoustic. Um, it did not. Be- it felt both that it didn't belong, but it also didn't feel inappropriate. You know, like you think back. One of the guys that I've talked about as like a YouTube uh, person to watch is Patrick H. Willems, and he did a. I, I want to say a two-hour documentary as to needle drops in cinema over like the last hundred years, and it's actually probably his best video essay. And he divides the 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 skill the effect into various different formats, and one of them is the you know the anachronistic. Um, diegetic which is like the uh i think diegetic means like you don't know that the music is playing um i think it's it's non-diegetic or diegetic like the wire has no music in it that isn't in the story until the end of each season and so i i I don't know which which term applies to this but like um uh, marie antoinette starring kirsten dunst 
features modern music that the that the characters cannot hear. And in that case, it was interesting and it was kind of a quirky feature of that film, which wasn't received very well. But it was a choice, and I appreciated that. And it it sort of it stood out in a way that made the film interesting and worth talking about when it came to like the idea of adding of adding a, a music to films. This was similar, but it didn't detract from it. It didn't feel out of place. It didn't feel weird. It felt like it belonged there, even though it wasn't necessarily of the time. Like it was a comment musically on what we were seeing, even though it was certainly a modern sound you were hearing. And it was it was great. I thought it was really powerful. You know, did did you did you did did that catch your ear at all? Did you did you you know did you hear that in the same way at all or no? Oh yeah. Well, I mean, I heard it in that it, the movie starts with that sound because the movie starts with like some random kid you've never seen, or you know, like he dies in that opening scene, and it turns out that his uniform gets like reused and given to the main character later. And they just tear the tag off and give it to him, you know. Um, and that that music gets reused every time something like that ends up repeating itself in the film. This feeling of like going into battle because there's no music when they actually fight. There's just noise. So, which is different from most war movies. So, like every time something was about to happen or about to fight, there's this sense of like, oh my god, you know, everyone I'm standing around me probably going to die including myself that's when that music kicks in like that guitar like like this wailing sound and there's a big stretch in the middle where it doesn't happen because the fighting doesn't stop but like they're not involved in anything for a while you know the german leaders are trying to get the the armistice signed and then when it happens again at the end before like the last fight i was like oh yeah <laughs> well that's not good you know <laughs> like like you know like the back of your brain realizes like oh something bad is going to happen here and yeah spoiler alert of course he, he dies he's the last one of, of the group to die so it was very well done yeah i um that's funny. i had a i had a note that says visuals are clear and gory without being pornographic and then the next note says, then I watched the tank scene. <laughs> uh, yeah. Because you're right, for a long, like, th- there's the first couple of battles, there's the, the opening battle with the guy you really don't know, Heimrich, whatever his name is, he gets killed immediately. And then you meet your main character, whose name I can't recall, a, 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 a Paul, a Powell, oh, a Babbler, yeah. Paul. And, um... And then, you know, he has his first battle, and then it, everything kind of stops. Like, the, the intense action just sort of sort of ceases. Because you're right, like it's, a, at the, it's at the end of the war. They have their first big battle. They get their, you know, they, they have their first friend die, the guy with the glasses. And, um, you know, they kind of like, you see, you're seeing them living out their lives in this environment, and like, that's always the most interesting thing, you know, to me in a war movie, and in, in really in any war story, is like how people go through the day to day. You know, like there, there was a, there's a, there's an author. Her name is Mary Roach. She's written a bunch of books about sort of the intricacies of the banality of various occupations or situations. So, you know. She wrote a book called Grunt and a book called, oh, I can't think what the name of it, it's like Going to Mars or uh, uh, Packing for Mars, it's called. And it's about like, what is it you need to survive day in and day out as a Marine in Iraq or in Afghanistan? You know, what is it you would need to survive if you were living on Mars? And, you know, as much as I sort of think this move of, historians to look at only the small people and not the great people of history is kind of silly. At the same time, it is interesting to see how the average World War I soldier took a dump, 
And you got to see that in this movie. Like you see these these two guys sitting on an open latrine. One guy reading, you know, who cannot read, having a letter from his wife read to him. Like those small moments for these kind of stories are really interesting. And um, and this film captures a lot of that really, really well. And that's the, the first, uh, if the film is broken up into, it's more than three parts. It's really more like five. And like the second part of the film is really like, you know, these guys just going through the business of like day to day. Like what is it to be, you know, a German soldier in World War One, And like they run around and they try to feed themselves and they steal chickens and they find French girls to have sex with. And like it's, you know, it, things really calm down quite a bit and you get lulled into a false sense of like, oh, maybe they're just going <laughs> to, they'll be okay. It'll just end, and then no, everything goes really badly <laughs> shortly after that, and then you you know you really you you get a sense of like the the you know the continued horror, the bureaucratic insanity that are, that are the negotiations, and then the final push, which is just you know you know one insane German you know commanders. You know, it, it it's so goddamn sad. It's yeah. so fucking sad. Well, they do a good job not sitting around pontificating about their own mortality and you know the 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 futileness of war. Like a lot of those movies, like a Thin Red Line, where they're all sitting around writing poetry or whatever. You know, if you're gonna show us the horrific battle scenes then you might as well show us what it's really like when there aren't any battles where they're just sitting around waiting and they're freezing at night and they're starving during the day and they're eating like the same potato every single week. You know, it's not exactly interesting because too much of that is also monotonous, but if you're going to show us the horrors of, of, of battle, then show us the, the boringness of sitting around because that's a lot of what their lives are. Like while the the head of the German armies are arguing about like, you know, they know they're going to lose the war. The the question is how badly are they going to surrender? They're all sitting there arguing like the longer we sit here with our pride, more people are going to die. So we might as well just sign whatever so we can get this over with, you know? So, and as they're doing that, all the regular soldiers and the grunts are just sitting around waiting and wondering when they can go home. So they do it. They, you're right. They do a good job of that because it, it feels real at that point. Yeah. And I think that's a thing in, I don't know if it's American, you know, it's not cinema, it's not TV. Cause this is a thing you see throughout. Is there a term for just visual storytelling as you know, like you lump together TV and, and and cinema at, at the same time because you see it in a lot of shows like you know Better Call Saul and Breaking Bad you know like they do it really well in those shows like how do you build a meth lab in the middle of the desert and disguise it and disguise it as a laundry now how do you do that that's got to be interesting right and it turns out yeah it's incredibly interesting because of all the things that like and yeah you embellish a little bit and you you know you hire a german crew and you put them up, up in an airplane hangar and you feed them beer and have them do a job and one of the guys walks off the reservation and then you have to shoot him in the back of the head in the middle of the desert but like there there's you're creating a system of rules which the people involved have to adhere to and it's the, it's that sort of construct and that creates a system for characters to operate in and has how they function in that system that makes things interesting and that's i think probably the best storytelling that you could ever hope to achieve it's easy to talk about abraham lincoln or other people and you know grandiose topics and you know soldiers writing poetry is fine but it's also been done. And like one of the reasons I loved the, like the, the, the recent Lincoln movie with uh, uh, Daniel Day Lewis was that like, they said like, well, what if we talked about one aspect of Lincoln's uh, 
story wherein he had to behave a certain way based on the the environment that he was in and not about who the ideal Lincoln was as a whole. And you can kind of talk about when they blur, blur, blur the lines there, but that's kind of what they're doing here is they're creating an environment based on the situation and putting your characters in it and saying, how do you survive this? Well, a lot of it is like anything with a camera. What are you going to show me? Yeah. So, I, at the end in the last battle when the they have one it's completely futile like there's no point in fighting but the, their German commander forces them to and then you sh- they do show a lot of the French sitting around in their trench and they're just waiting for time to be over because the war is over like they sign the armistice and at 11 o'clock everyone goes home and the Germans are trying to like kill them one more time before 11 o'clock so they start showing you the French who are just sitting there like drinking celebrating and like their main commander he gets more nods than most is sitting there reading because to have a book that's not covered in mud and destroyed is a luxury and to sit and read and like not worry about a bomb landing on your head is a relaxation method that they weren't afforded before this you know showing what soldiers what the soldiers are doing is important the same with like we were saying with like the the, the carnage and the, the gruesomeness. The guys were getting hurt and injured and the guy in the tank gets crushed. But a lot of the other guys, when they get blown up or shot in the face, you know, I'm not seeing bone and viscera here. We're just seeing like a blood gash on their face and stuff, which is fine. I mean, it's probably not 100% accurate, but whatever. It's a movie. But then when they show that their buddy, like before he kills himself and he's going to become crippled, he's injured in the leg. And he says, I can't feel my leg. How bad is it? Then they show you this horribly mangled leg. It's a visual choice to show that to the audience to say, look, this is why he's about to kill himself. His leg has not just got like a cut on it. He's going to lose his leg and lose a lot mentally after that as well. So, you know, good filmmakers will show you what needs to be shown and hint or hide other things that don't need to be which is a lot of it too so like i showing us what the soldiers do when they're stressed and when they're relaxed is important were a lot of them sitting around writing and reading poetry probably not <laughs> it, it, it just it just, just depends on what it is that you want us to know and see when we're watching it the message of this movie is war is hell and it's terrible and wasteful so Here's what happens to men who are in a war. They have miserable, wasted lives, and they all pretty much end up dead. <laughs> gotcha. Loud yeah. and clear. Okay. Yeah, this very, very little ambiguity there. The, I, um, I'm looking over my, my notes here. One of the things I loved was the, uh, I shouldn't say love, but I, one thing I appreciated was, was foreshadowing without language. I always love that, you know, Steven Steven Spielberg's good at that, you know, with the uh, with the with the glasses of water on the um, on the dashboard in Jurassic Park, with like the thumping of the of the of the Tyrannosaurus, things like that, and like when they when they captured like the French garrison or like the, the French trench, like all right, hey, we're here, and look, they have food, and like they're, they're eating all their food, drinking all their wine, like shoving it in their faces, and then the rats all run away. Oh yeah. Oh man. <laughs> rats I find to be a very powerful visual example of you know, we might be a fairly lowly species, but we're going to survive this cuz there's something about us that knows like <laughs> it's time to go. This is not we should not be here anymore and I I always enjoy that about my son is actually reading a book right now a part of these magic treehouse series of books these 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 little kid books and the the story that he's reading now is the the book about Pompeii and in, in this little story they you know the, the two little kids in the story they go to Pompeii and they don't really know why they're there and they're like we got to do a thing but like everything feels kind of funny like nothing feels right. Everyone's kind of walking around. Yeah, it's ancient Rome, so it feels kind of weird. But like this one character says, like, "Hey, listen, 
there's no more water in the town, and all the birds have left. So maybe y'all should figure out how to get out of Dodge pretty quick. And I always like that about these stories where, like, the animals have that sixth sense where they know, we should leave. And whenever you can use that to your advantage visually, I always find it to be very powerful because the animals tend to, yeah, you know, they're they're a lowlier species, but they also have a thing that helps them survive, whereas humans do not have that. And I just really enjoy that moment. The rats just like, well, it's been great. We got to get out of here. And they all bolt for the door. And that's just the, cl- the clue that things are about to get kind of crazy. And I just, I, I, I really enjoyed that a little bit. Um, I did read a little bit about the novel. Um, and one of the things that was in the, the Wikipedia page about the novel, which was not in the film, was that he actually returns to his hometown in Germany yeah. before the end of the war. And I remember reading this, like the, the like a quick synopsis about the movie. I think it's on Netflix. And it was, you know, it says like, oh, you know, German soldiers experiences in World War One, and his difficulty assimilating back into society kind of thing and like you know it was a very sort of cursory some kid in at netflix wrote a you know a three sentence blurb about the film and um i had you know i was expecting as i watched it like that to be a feature of the film like how it was difficult having been to the front and then been back home the the reintegration into society that he would have to struggle with and that doesn't really appear in the movie at all like it's just it's just him at the front the whole time you never see him back home again his um his buddy mentions it when they're on the can uh of like what they're going to do when they return and his friend is the one who says like i think it'll be really hard to be back like and not because like he doesn't like explicitly say, I think this trauma of being on the front lines is going to make it difficult to assimilate back into society. Like, <laughs> no, he just says like, I've been doing this a long time and I don't know what it'll be like to relax. And, you know, I'm afraid I'll see my wife in a different way. Like he says it in, in a certain way and they kind of shrug at one another. And that's when Paul says like, well, we'll, we'll still be friends. Maybe we'll hang out or whatever. And it, it comes up a couple of times after that where his friend says, like, you you need to go back to your normal life. It's me yeah. who's going to have a hard time, you know? That was a very powerful scene where he says, like, you're a, you know, I'm a cobbler I can't read. Yeah. You have to go to school. He's like, I will shoot you right now if you tell me that you're not going to do that. And I was like, fuck, he's not kidding. Like, there was something about the way he did that. Where, like, that, that's why I'm really glad for the lack of, of the dubbing because that line would not have come across with the dub. Like I will fucking murder you in this field and walk on and like be okay with it if you tell me that you're not going back to college. Yeah. Like that that was So and I think it was the right choice to not have him go home. But they could still hint at it and, and talk about like it would be really hard to return from that, you know, such an intense thing and then just to go home. They do that in other movies. The Hurt Locker was completely yeah, about that. Yeah, you know. So, but like, I think if you had taken him away from from the front lines and had him go home, it it just wouldn't have flowed as well in terms of the movie. No, it it doesn't work. Everything would stop, and I can't think of another movie where they did that. Like, The Hurt Locker is the only one, and they did it. I'll never forget, like watching it. I watched it on like a little tiny TV in my wife's old apartment in Manhattan. And we're like, okay, well, this film was one best picture. Nobody expected it to. Maybe we should take a look at it. And it was good. It was, holy shit, it was, it was insane. And um, and then all of a sudden, like, there's that abrupt cut where he's standing in the goddamn cereal aisle. I mean, how great of a moment was that? Where, I mean, talk about like I, I kind of feel bad for Jeremy Renner in a way because like he went from like an indie film, Oscar-winning darling to like a Marvel character that is like a B-list Marvel character with a kind of a dopey show on Disney Plus in a way. But like you know that was a very very difficult thing to pull off with just like a tight shot on his face looking at like 
you know, Fruity Pebbles and <laughs> Golden Grams and all these different cereals are going like, there's so many cereals. What do I do? Like, that's not an yeah. easy thing to shoot. He, it's unfortunate that everyone gives him that gives that character crap because uh, Jeremy Renner is a good actor. You know? He's a very, he's a very so. good actor. He's, I, I feel really bad. Like his his turn is like the like the new Jason Bourne didn't pan out. Yeah, I, I didn't see that one, so I don't know if that was him or no one saw movie. that one. The like, movie wasn't good, or I, I I think it was a combination of both. I felt that that you know not, not to get too off on a tangent here, but like the first Bourne movie was really good, and the next two were you know bullshit. And then they had him come in to do one. And it was just like you know like a like an offshoot of that. That didn't take I, off. I just have a feeling people were done with Born at that point anyway, and then they were like, "Oh, here's a Born without actual Born," and I was like, "Well, that's even less of what I want to see." So yeah, it didn't really work. But then, like they brought it, Matt Damon back again because like needed to make a boat payment, and so he actually just bought a house near me, bought a ten million dollar house in Bedford, New York. Yeah, why boring. not? It's all over the news, but um, but like, yeah, I have like no other notes about this movie. There's not like, I don't have a complaint, and I wonder like, if this was a a movie in my language, would I have more to say? Ah, oh, you know, things I didn't like because we always have like a thing as we talk about these movies, like, well, I didn't like this. This could have been done better. Like we we always try to find a thing where we we, we don't want to be too positive about a movie. Um, but I can't think of a thing where I'm like, this is not any good, or this was kind of dumb, or this was, I don't have that here. And I, I think that might be a language barrier thing, but I don't know that for sure. So I can't confirm. I, no, I don't think so. I, I think it was just very well done and it, it didn't have anything superfluous to it. Yes, that's true. I, you know, it wasn't like uh, there were extra scenes where I was like, what's the point of this scene? You know, because everything came back around or uh, all the characters. I mean, may, you could maybe say the subplot with the the commanders was a little long. Some of those scenes were long where they were talking in the train car with the French guys and stuff. Oh, I but I wasn't like mad about it. No, it wasn't excruciating. <laughs> like, why are we still here? It was... It was all pretty pretty pared down. They had a lot of information to give out, a lot of character to, you know, the French guy had to, you know, do his thing, and the German guy had to do his thing. You know, some of the, like, the long, protracted scenes signing a document seemed long, but, like, every second, the guy said every second we're sitting here talking, people are dying. Like, they did, they, they kept hammering that home. So, like, any pause was very pregnant it was not an it was not like an, an an empty pause i think the only thing i think i got tired of and that's just me it's a personal thing is they they spent a lot of time highlighting how the heads of these armies always eat very well and they're not in the muck in the mud and they you know they do the saluting and they do the the nice outfits and you know, like he's feeding the dog his food in one of the scenes, the the crazy German leader. Yeah. Like he has extra meat on his plate, so he tosses it to his dog. Meanwhile, the guy the guys in the trenches are eating potatoes every single day. Like they they'd kill for anything. And um that's true. That's what happens. The generals and the higher ups, of course, are living the on nicer life. Um I think they, they highlighted it a little too much here, but I, I just get tired of that that concept but that's just me i mean i'm sure nobody else even noticed i i didn't I mean i noticed it but i didn't notice it as being sort of like egregious i felt that it was if anything it was understated like just they, they really they didn't they didn't highlight the amount of of vermin that they needed to dispatch with before they could eat food like they they really underplayed based on what I know from World War One that everything you ate was covered in maggots until you burned off the maggots. So like yeah, but see like that's what I mean. Like they didn't have to, they didn't have to do things that much 
but you would still get that message. Yeah, and I felt like they still underscored it with what they did. Like, yeah, it was a little dramatic at times, the lighting in particular. I really enjoyed the cinematography of this. Like, I think World War II in particular lends itself to strong uses of light and color, as you saw with, like, Roger Deakins doing 1917. You know, the flares alone just are endless opportunities for contrast. And they were employed here, not gratuitously. I thought, like, Deakins did the best job you could do in making a war film look beautiful. I think they really was remarkable, especially like that scene before the, uh, like like the act break in the middle there, where he's in that burnt out town in Paris, and like there's all these various shots of like the flares going up ahead, and him running through this burnt out remnant of a city. Um, so like, you know, there's there's a little bit of like the the, the gratuitousness and like. German commander in his big palace with his fireplace. Everything is amber and warm versus this green and blue tone you had like out in the trenches. Um, and there's nothing you can do visually to 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 make that any more like any realer without being like perceived as bizarre. And so the fact that he threw food to his dog, yeah, it's kind of gilding the lily, but. You're you're so far off that mark in reality. It's just it's absurd. So like I kind of forgive that stuff when like when I when I know a little bit about what they were eating, which is just a hard attack. They had hard attack and didn't take a shit for four years. I mean these guys, absolute <laughs> goddamn hell, you know. And when, when I when I think about the tactics in World War One and how they were basically woefully inept as compared to the technology, I oftentimes think about the American Civil War and how. I don't know that much about European history, but like, was there a, a war that employed the kind of technology between 1870 and, you know, 1911? Like, because the Americans did the same thing in 1861 that the Europeans did in the early 20th century. Was it like, yeah, it was worse with the machine gun. That made things a lot worse. But like, tactics in both wars we're well behind the technology. So by the time you get to the Civil War, you get rifling in in muskets, and so you had greater accuracy. It wasn't like this giant like column of fire where the British soldiers march in a line against the American colonists and they just you know, they have a battle like that. It was it was much you know, there was I remember watching the, the Ken Burns documentary and it's like there was there were no bayonet wounds. Nobody got close to each other in the Civil War. In America, they all shot each other from a mile away because they could, but they didn't adjust their tactics. And the same thing seems to be true here. Again, not a, I'm not a historian at all. I know just the barest amount about this. But they, you know, like you said before, they their their tactics was just to run at the at the machine gun, and maybe we'll 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 we'll, we'll get there before we run out of guys. <laughs> and like maybe that's. They probably just didn't know what else to do, right? You know, it's. So I it think seems, that's why they dug the trenches. Yeah, yeah, it makes they, sense to me. They didn't have trenches in any other war like this, but they were like, "Oh my god!" Now, when we stand here, we get mowed down, so we don't have enough planes to go over. And therefore, we must go down, and like you can only dig so far. Like you're not going to dig, you know, ten thousand feet. So they did just dug trenches. And uh, it, they were just in constant stalemates. I mean, the amount of land that they gave up and, and lost and won was minuscule. So, yeah, I mean, when you consider the, the 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 number of casualties versus the amount of land destroyed in World War One, it's nothing. Like it's it's a million people and like you know eighty miles show, worth of land. And I mean, and they show that really, like especially when like when the tanks show up and all they can do is just fire their guns at them because they don't have anything else. They have those little grenades, but you got to be right next to the tank. And at that point, if you don't, if you still have your head, you know, you could do something. So like, they don't know what to do. They just start firing at them, making no progress at all. And then they just run. They they just didn't have, uh, they had some things that could kill each other, but not enough that like a plane could destroy the tank or what have you, you know, it was, it was gruesome. It was gruesome to watch and think about. 
Then you were just sending men into a meat grinder. Like, oh my it's, god! It's really what it was. It was just, it, it, yeah, it was, yeah. It, but it made for a wonderful film in terms of like you want to tell a story with as much efficiency as possible. This is what it looks like. Yeah, and you know, you're not even mad that they don't all make it. Like he, like he got stabbed at the end. He's the last one of the group, and you're like, oh man, that's what a bummer. But <laughs> And there was some of that, like, oh, geez, like nobody's getting out of this. But you, I got over it quick enough because that's the point. Yeah. And at that point, there's like a young soldier. It's his like first or second day there. And he takes everything off of Paul, like the scarf. And I'm sure he took his notes or whatever. And so, you know, the, the kid lives on that way. They don't get erased, these people, you know. They do their best to do that. Like they take all their dog tags and they just throw them in a big pile and melt it down. But like it gets out that these people were where they existed and they made a difference and they were important to people, even though they're gone now, you know, like they still had an impact on someone even after they died. And that's important. Yeah. You know, it's different from like a sci-fi movie where like the timeline gets erased and nothing happens and you're like, oh, what the hell? <laughs> you know, like <laughs> like those are those are cheap resets. Whereas this one is is not doesn't feel that way. You know, they all affected one another and then they, they affected people who will continue to go on. So you're like, oh yeah. the ones and, I was following died, but the story continues even though the movie's over. And it maintains its sense of futility. Right. Yeah, which is you know, it, it's something that like sci fi stories that are cheap like that, where like, you know, when they do a, sort of a reset, try to, they, they want to get to like that sense of futility. Like, oh, everything just comes back around again. Like, no, it doesn't. You've, 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 you've reset things. You've erased. You can't do that. And like, this doesn't, you know, this has the sense of like, you know, perseverance, you know, without dwelling which sort of feels like a reset but it's not it's not it's not the same thing mm. so but yeah i mean look netflix has really made a lot of or i should say bought a really bunch of bad movies but they've also really made the effort to produce some gems and i think marriage story and this movie and i'm sure there's one more i can think of but like they're really quite good and it's a shame they get buried now in an in a in a service that sort of mostly makes garbage or, you know, it's, it's, it's an interesting time for the business for sure. But uh, there, there, it's nice to see that there is still something being produced, uh, you know, on this, this service that is, uh, that is worth your time because we're all paying them the money we have to. So <laughs> it's by law at this point. We have to be paying Netflix something, even if, even it's, if it's with ads. Apparently, yeah, yeah. Didn't realize. Yeah, no. They they have a they have a they have a new entry tier now at seven dollars a month. You can pay them and watch TV shows with ads. Mm, I'm not doing that. No, I hate, I hate advertisements. No, I'm. You know, I actually, I actually decided to pay for YouTube Premium because i got so many political ads in the last few weeks i was like i i got a i should say i i i paid for it i got an offer for a free month and so i jumped at it i was like i will absolutely sign up for this and if i pay you an extra for like for one month later on cuz i forget to sign, to 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 cancel the contract i i'll i'll eat that 11 dollars but apparently for the 200 million people watching youtube only 20 million people pay for the YouTube Premium. Hmm. That's I. I was surprised that only ten percent of people actually like don't want to want ads for YouTube. But there it is. Yeah. But if you guys have any thoughts about All Quiet on the Western Front, or if you have any thoughts about war films or Netflix or all that stuff, you should let us know. Uh, we are at Three Drinks in Pod on Instagram and Facebook. You should. Email us at three drinks in podcast at gmail.com. You can find us on Facebook. You can buy t shirts for us at tpublic.com. Don't forget to subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you listen. Leave ratings and reviews. Uh, is there anything else? Yeah, I think that's it. 
All right. As always, please drink responsibly, and we'll talk to you all next time. Bye-bye. Bye.